From the CPRI Knowledge Hub and CPRIHub.org, this is Research Minutes, a deep dive into new and important research in the realm of education. I'm Michelle Goodwin. Today on a special episode, we dive into the 2018 midterm elections and the potential impacts of a so-called blue wave. A lot of conversation at the state level and then the national level about free college, for example, that might find a place in that bill if it's reauthorized. Or Republicans maintaining control of both the House and the Senate. I think they're looking for money to offset those tax cuts with spending cuts, and I think education is unlikely to be immune from that push. We welcome Drew University researcher and CPRI policy expert Patrick McGuinn, who shares his thoughts on some of the nation's most pressing issues, including school infrastructure, student civil rights, college accountability, and education funding. There were drastic cuts after the recession that have not been restored. I think there'll be some action around teacher pay, some action around increasing education spending in the state legislatures after the election. McGuinn sits down with CPRI Research Director Jonathan Sapovitz to discuss the priorities and possibilities of the 116th United States Congress. This is Jonathan Sapovitz, director of the CPRI Knowledge Hub, and I'm here with the renowned education researcher Patrick McGuinn from Drew University. Hi, Pat. Good to have you on. Hi, John. Good to be here. Thank you. Here we sit maybe uh, two weeks out from the 2018 midterms, and I know that there's a lot of uncertainty about what will happen and how this will influence education policy in the second half of the first part of the Trump administration. As things stand, it looks like the Democrats are leading in polls to take over the majority of the House, which would lead to a split Congress. What would the implications of that be for federal education policy? Republicans probably can take continue control of the Senate, but that the Democrats have a good chance of taking the House. But again, it's going to be very close. The early uh, forecasts say we're going to have a record turnout for, for midterm elections. And again, in all these battleground districts, that the Democrats need to flip to make, uh, get control of the House is looking very close. I think I'll, I'll start with the, the scenario where Republicans maintain control of both the House and the Senate. And I think one of the interesting things to consider there is during the first two years of the Trump administration, we had Republican control of both chambers, and yet they were not terribly receptive to the Trump administration's education agenda, which really called for dramatic cuts to federal education spending, which Congress rejected and actually increased federal spending on education uh, in its last budget, and then also a, a dramatic expansion of support for school choice and in particular school voucher programs nationwide. Again, some token money was thrown at that expanding uh, charter schools, but really at the end of the day, that policy proposal was rejected by the Republican Congress as well. So I certainly don't think that this is a Congress that's going to march lockstep with the Trump administration's proposals, even if the Republicans continue to control. I think the different context after 2018 will be the the consequence of the large Republican tax cuts that we saw in the the past couple of years. And Republicans are, are going into this midterm election calling for dramatic cuts really across the board in federal spending on, on domestic programs. And I think they're looking for money to offset those tax cuts with spending cuts. And, and I think education is, is unlikely to be immune from that push, despite the general popularity of education spending among Congress, because it goes so widely to, to all congressional districts and states. Are there any particular areas within education that you think are vulnerable to cuts? Probably Title I spending, unfortunately, which is obviously the biggest pot of federal spending under ESEA. This is money that is really targeted towards those districts with concentrated poverty, uh, with students who are are disadvantaged and and need supplemental programming and resources directed at their education. These are, by definition, not Republican-leaning parts of the country for the most part, at least to the degree that a lot of this Title I money 
goes to urban districts. However, there's also a lot of rural poverty, and those districts do tend to be represented by Republicans, which does explain some of the longstanding support for federal education spending. Though, again, at the end of the day, if the Republicans have to find money, uh, these programs could be could be on the chopping block. And what are the things that Secretary DeVos is, is currently uh, promulgating? They really have not had a terribly robust uh, education agenda. It really has more been about cuts, cuts to education spending, cuts to a Department of Education staff, and cuts to the Department of Education regulation. And in that area, they have achieved a great deal to the consternation of many people who believe those regulatory protections that have been in place or were put in place during the Obama years are necessary to protect poor minority kids out in American schools. Uh, they've rolled back uh, the activity of the Office of Civil Rights inside of the Department of Education. They've obviously implemented ESSA, which has been another one of their most important activities. And they've done so in a way that some critics of, uh, uh, who are concerned about equity say really takes some of the pressure and the focus off of some of the, the disadvantaged student populations and, and some of the subgroup accountability that, that many would like to see uh, implemented more rigorously. Play out the scenario the other way. Let's take the bigger gamble where Congress goes totally on the Democratic side. What will happen then? Well, Trump's still going to be there, presumably, although that, of course, is the other part of the post-election context that will be interesting and, and very unpredictable. There are a lot of indications that one of two things is going to happen after the midterm is that Mueller's going to release his, his report and his findings, which will preoccupy Congress, regardless of who's in charge, for a considerable amount of time. There also are rumblings that soon after the election, regardless of the outcome, that the president may well fire some of the key players involved at Sessions and Rod Rosenstein at the Justice Department and in turn replace them with someone who would fire Mueller and his investigation. That uh, alternative, too, would preoccupy Congress, probably whoever's in charge for a considerable amount of time. You know, in any of those scenarios, there may not be a lot of oxygen left in the room for, for discussion of education policy or any other uh, policy for, for that matter, if, if the focus remains or even uh, expands on Trump and the, the Mueller investigation. I will note that, that there are two major bills that are, are still pending for reauthorization in Congress, the HEA, the Higher Education Act, which is the higher college and university complement to the K-12 ESEA law. That's been sitting due for reauthorization for a long time, and then that didn't happen prior to the midterms. So that certainly might be something that if the Democrats are in charge, or, or even if the Republicans are, they may want to take that up. A lot of conversation at the state level and then the national level about, about free college, for example, that might find a place in that bill if it's reauthorized. Though, again, that would be something that costs a lot of money, and so there are budgetary constraints around that. The other bill that's, that's hanging around out there for reauthorization is IDEA. Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, federal funding for special education in the United States. And again, there's you're talking about dollars, right? But actually, IDEA is something that's been a very Republican-supported and bipartisan-supported bill and program for a long time. The federal government's never picked up anything close to its share of, of that spending. And so that, that might be a bill that actually Republicans, if they can find the dollars, uh, would be willing to, to support and perhaps even increase. One other topic or area that has received some attention as a potential area where, you know, Republican Congress might act if they're in charge or where even you might see some bipartisanship between the Democrats and one chamber and House potentially and Republicans controlling the Senate is around school infrastructure. There's already a bill that, that's been introduced in the House, the Rebuild America School Act. It hasn't gotten much traction yet. Again, would require 
some dollars. I think the number attached to it currently is about $200 billion. But infrastructure uh, in education and elsewhere is actually something that, that Republicans have been talking about. And even Trump himself have said that they're, they're supportive of it, and particularly as it might contribute to a sort of a public works jobs program as a, a secondary benefit. Now that the Every Student Succeeds Act has started to work its way down into states, do you see a lot of differences in state accountability approaches with the new flexibility that they've been given? Well, we do see a significant variance in terms of what states are proposing. I mean, and that's what ESSA was designed to do, right, was really give states more flexibility. Uh, it's one thing for these states to propose various kinds of plans, but the proof will be in the pudding when we actually see what, what happens out there in the field. That's something that, that worries me is what the state's capacity to take on this new enhanced role with both support and accountability. Absolutely. And the longstanding concerns about the capacity of state education agencies to either monitor or really provide support for school districts and individual schools that are that are struggling and need assistance. The other side of this is the is the resource question. I mean, we mentioned a second ago that we may see some significant cuts in federal education spending. Well, we know that that nationally, on average, many states have not even returned to their pre-2008 level, you know, before the recession, their level of spending, uh, and that there were drastic cuts after the recession that have not been restored. And in fact, part of the activism that we've seen out in the country around these midterm elections this year have been a, a lot of teacher strikes, a large, we think, unprecedented number of actual teachers running for elected office at the, at the state and federal level. It'll be interesting to see the outcome of that after the midterms are over. And, you know, a real call for some of these states, like, for example, Kansas and Oklahoma, that dramatically cut their education spending, uh, often in, in the context of statewide tax cuts, to restore a lot of that spending. And I think there'll be some action around around teacher pay, some action around uh, increasing uh, education spending uh, at, in the state legislatures after the election. Going back to the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, my colleague Richard Ingersoll just released an update of his seven trends report, which looked at 30 years of trends in the changes in the teacher labor market. And one of the trends that he's seeing is a ballooning of the teacher workforce which in some ways is aligned with the increasing number of kids who are being tagged as special education students. And smaller class sizes, more specialized instruction, whether it's inclusion with aids or pullouts. I'm wondering if that is connected at all to the reauthorization of IDEA. Yes, and this is, you know, when you're talking about special education, you know, you're, you, the courts are significantly uh, involved in this. You mentioned, yeah. you know, the large increase in, in staffing and dollars as well that have been allocated to, to special education um, since IDEA was originally passed back in the 1970s, I believe. And this is a, a concern for a couple of reasons. One, not that anybody wants to deny kids who have special needs, you know, their full full resources and access to an education. But typically, we've seen that a larger and larger share of a school, dist a school district's budget are going to special education kids, even while the overall budget, the overall pot of money is is not increasing and in some cases is shrinking. And so that's, you know, it's a concern some educators have raised and some administrators about, you know, less dollars available for the rest of the student population as we're seeing more resources directed towards this, this one particular uh, population of need. We have seen historically the federal courts rather broadly uh, and expansively interpret IDEA to, to command states to, to allocate these, these extensive resources. 
um, and to really personalize education for these students. But we have a new court, a new justice, obviously, uh, very recently on the court, a, a more conservative justice than, than the one he replaced in, in Kennedy. It's in, possible, probable even, um, that we may get new court, more restrictive court rulings um, from, from this Supreme Court and from a more conservative federal judiciary overall from the last two years of, of Trump appointees that perhaps reduces the scope um, and expense of IDEA for the states. So it's interesting because while the number of teachers is ballooning in some ways because of more kids being classified as special ed, the teacher labor market is also, as, as Richard Ingersoll would point out, greening, which means that the average age of teachers and the average experience of teachers is getting less and less. As a matter of fact, the most common number of years of experience of teachers right now is one year of experience. That's a countervailing force on the trend of education expenses because, of course, less experienced teachers are less expensive. It's interesting. I think a couple of things are going on there. One, this has happened in my home state of New Jersey under Governor Christie a few years ago. We've seen a lot of states really uh, re-looking re at the question of, of health and pension benefits because those, those costs and particularly unfunded uh, costs, liabilities in, in those systems have exploded. Uh, and so you've seen changes, reductions in many cases in, in benefits or increases in, in costs for teachers for those benefits. Um, New Jersey, for example, they didn't used to pay anything for health insurance and now and now they do. Those changes have pushed some of the more experienced older teachers out of the classroom. We've also seen teacher salaries in many places have been have been flat for many years or in some cases gone backwards. And that's also led some of the more experienced teachers to to, to retire and to leave the classroom. So again, that's part of what the debate is going to be at the state legislature level about um, whether to restore some of these fundings and what to do about these benefit issues, which certainly have not have not gone away in New Jersey or most places uh, as well. One last question about the Higher Education Act. When the Elementary and Secondary Education Act was was renewed, there was more attention on accountability. So I'm wondering if accountability is also a emphasis in the Higher Education Act. Well, we have seen accountability creeping into the higher education conversation for a number of years. There hasn't ever really been any accountability for performance or for outcomes attached to federal dollars in, in higher education. It's a very different, more diverse marketplace than K-12. A lot more obviously private providers in particular and a lot more of choice. But that conversation is, has really been begun. I can also tell you it's being pushed by accrediting bodies that are pushing uh, institutions like mine. I'm on the assessment committee here at, at, at Drew and we're talking regularly about creating student learning outcomes that have to be now placed on each individual course syllabus and they have to be measurable. We're looking at creating student learning outcomes for our general education curriculum as well, really trying to measure are, are, are the students learning, what are they learning, where are their strengths, where are their weaknesses. And part of that is also tied to concerns about rising costs in higher education over the past 40 years. We've seen dramatically rising costs uh, and concerns about, um, about efficiency, the rate of return uh, on, on those kinds of investments. So both on the cost side and I, and I think on the productivity or outcome side, you know, the conversation in higher education is changing. And I think that's a conversation or change that's supported by many on both sides of the aisle. Republicans, perhaps more from a sort of efficiency angle, right? Are the federal government spending all this money? Are they and, and parents and students getting their money's worth? out of colleges and universities, there's, there's a sense that many are not. I think for Democrats, there's a real equity focus here on higher education, just as there was 
in K-12 that sort of led to the passage of, of No Child Left Behind and that kind of accountability at the elementary and secondary education level. That being said, the higher education lobby has proved to be enormously powerful and resilient. The Obama administration proposed a college rating system which was met with fire and brimstone by the higher education community, which fought back successfully to really have that watered down. And they certainly won't be lying down on this fight should it be brought back again. All of these things are very interesting things to keep our eyes on. And um, I guess we are blessed or cursed to be living in interesting times. We'll see what happens on November 7th. I'm sure that the only constant will be change. I think that's exactly right. Thank you, John, for the opportunity to talk today. Thanks, Pat. It was great to talk to you. Thanks for listening to Research Minutes, presented by the CPRE Knowledge Hub. For more episodes or to subscribe to the series, visit us at cprehub.org. That's cprehub.org. To share your thoughts on today's episode or suggest future topics, follow us on Twitter at CPRE Hub. We look forward to you joining the conversation.